service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The following episode is satire. It's not true crime. Sorry. It was released on April 1st, 2019 as an April Fool's joke. And the immediate response on social media was pretty overwhelming and I freaked out and pulled the episode after it had only been live for a couple of hours. Many of you Disgraceland subscribers did not hear it and you emailed me and tweeted at me asking how you can get your ears around it. And for those of you who did hear the episode and wrote me to curse me out or were eager to share a laugh at your own expense as you found yourself pulled over on the side of the road on the subway in a bus or in your bed frantically Googling for breaking news on the identity of the Zodiac Killer. I'm sorry, not sorry. Edited lightly to protect the identity of the victims, here is the episode as it originally appeared in its entirety, including the breathless fake intro that went like this. Yo, quick heads up. I recorded this episode uh, quickly last night, trying to respond to the breaking news and to contextualize a fast-moving story that's just developing and to tell it in a disgraceland way. I want to thank Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright from Tenderfoot TV for quickly making available uh, their source material for their monster season on the Zodiac Killer. And also a special thanks to the Vallejo City Chronicle for their dogged reporting and for being first to get this news out. Also, David Fincher, I'd be nowhere fast on this had I not watched your film Zodiac a thousand times. Okay, let's get into this special Monday edition release of Disgraceland. Buckle up, it's going to be a wild one. The singer I'm going to tell you about and the crimes he committed were insane. He shot a random cabbie in the back of the head on a San Francisco street corner. He slashed to death backseat lovers and picnicking couples. And for a brief period in 1969, his legend gripped the nation. You already know him by many names, the Lizard King, Mr. Mojo Rising, Jimbo, but never before by his original alternate identity, the Zodiac Killer. Until this morning's news started to break, this alternate identity was a secret. The idea that this worldwide recognizable rock star could also be one of America's most notorious serial killers was, and still kind of is, unfathomable. But we've seen this kind of double life in our culture before. As recently as 2014, when we learned that a star tight end, Aaron Hernandez from history's most successful NFL franchise, the New England Patriots, was a gangbanging, drug-dealing murderer and let us not forget O.J. Simpson, America's prom king, who ended up slashing his way into infamy. It took a while, but the unbelievable nature of these stories eventually set in and the truth was accepted. It's unclear to me how long it will take for us to accept the truth of this story, because right now it just seems ridiculous that the famed Zodiac Killer was one of the most popular musicians of all time. A musician who made great music. And that music I played for you at the top of the show, and that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Mellow Fast Waves BK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to It's My Party by Leslie Gore. 
And why would I play you that specific slice of weepy jukebox cheese, can I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on June 4th, 1963. And that was the day that a pent-up small-town teenager, in search of his own identity, with a fire in his eyes and a song in his heart, struck a deal with the devil that would change history forever. On this episode, Mellow Fast Waves, A Murderous Identity Crisis, Weepy Cheese, one of the greatest frontmen of all time, and the Zodiac Killer. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. kid deadpan to his father. Even in teenaged anger, his voice was low and broody. His mother did her best to ignore the latest in a series of daily tensions between her son and her husband by turning up Pat Boone on the transistor radio and busying herself with the dishes. The kid was home in Alameda, California, after a year of junior college in Florida, and he dared to bring up transferring to art school. Over my dead body was his father's predictable response. His dad was a Navy man, a rear admiral, and wanted something professional for his son, James. If not the military, then law school or an MBA. He'd even settle for a liberal arts degree if his son promised to get a master's later. To James, his parents' life was a lie. Raised a military brat, all the moving in the new schools, James had seen the military-industrial borders of suburbia and he had no place there. Without friends and with parents he didn't understand, he was thoroughly alienated, and so he turned inward and became an artist. His curiosity was bottomless. He read European philosophers Nietzsche and William Blake by 16. 16? Have you read Nietzsche and Blake? I've tried as an adult. And let's just say I'm a little more comfortable with the musings of the great American philosophers Daffy Duck and Bill Murray. They're more my speed. But by the time James was a senior, his English teacher made a habit of researching his student bibliographies to make sure James wasn't just inventing titles to support his papers. The joke was on teach. The citations were real. Medieval pamphlets about demonology, only available from the Library of Congress. James was an occasional D student, but only because school was a drag. He found it to be crushingly bourgeois, just like his family. There's no future in the arts. You don't have the talent, the rear admiral shouted. Why couldn't they recognize the brilliance inside him? He stormed up to his bedroom, slammed the door. Fuck them. They didn't realize their picket fence was a cage. The grand mysteries, the dark depths of the universe. James knew that's where the truth was. His parents would never look beyond the veil. But he would. He'd already started. James grabbed Alistair Crowley's magic and theory and practice from his bookshelf. He was that deep now. The Satanist Crowley the occultist Helena Blavatsky. James wanted to get high, but any smell would tip off the rear admiral and lead to a good old corporal punishment ass-kicking, so James had to hang his head out of the window to smoke the joint he just rolled. His version of howling at the moon, like his hero, bluesman Howlin' Wolf. He leaned backwards over the sill, sparked the J, and thought about Wolf's great and terrifying song, Evil. Once high, James ducked back inside and started a new Crowley chapter entitled of the bloody sacrifice matters cognate. He read, 
The first ethical lesson in the Bible is that the only sacrifice pleasing to the Lord is the sacrifice of blood. For the highest spiritual working, one must choose that victim, which contains the greatest and purest force. Hanging outside of the window, he took another hit. The OG Mendocino weed crossed James' soft palate. The poetry of dark ritual passed his lips. He had a moment of clarity, pins and needles all around his head. Like a hand rising from his throat to grab his brain, his crown chakra was on fire with the dark spirit energy. That was it. He knew who he was and what he had to do. In that instant, he understood the cheat codes written into morality by God for those willing to play by the devil's rules. James wandered over to his record player and put Howlin' Wolf on the turntable. Wolf's raspy, demonic voice enraptured the very stoned young James. But his mom would never forgive him for what he was about to do. Neither would his father. It didn't matter. He was nobody's son. He was no longer their James. He was simply Jim. It was June 3rd, 1963, and Jim Morrison had broke on through to the other side and blown the doors of his perception wide open. The next day, he took off. Before he split, he lifted the 22 pistol from the family gun cabinet. It was a woman's weapon, a historical piece. The rear admiral would never miss it. There was a chance he'd miss the rope and the jackknife from the garage, or the pair of old military-issue wingwalker boots that Jim took. But Jim didn't care. He bought a ticket on the first thing smoking, a Greyhound headed south. The driver parked at a rest area overlooking the beach. Ten minutes, he hollered. Next stop, Lompoc. Jim looked out his window and laughed dryly at his luck. It was senior skip day for the local high school kids. And there they were, down on the dunes. Free range hunting season, Jim thought. All the lush beauty of pure American youth. He honed in on a flirty couple walking away from the crowd somewhere private, Jim presumed. He shouldered his knapsack and slipped off the bus before he lost them. George Hernandez and Melinda Johnson were straight out of central casting, American as apple pie. High school seniors, already engaged to be married. Good kids, pure, at least for a while. Like all kids, they wanted to do what comes natural. And that's why it's called what comes natural. They were engaged now, and it was senior skip day. One thing was indeed going to lead to another thing. And that thing made Jim's chest swell with excitement. That thing is why Jim stalked George and Melinda like prey. George and Melinda's pent-up urges made them the most alive. And Alistair Crowley had told Jim that if he stole the life from them, through sacrificial rites, he could steal their life energy, bottle it into his own being, make their souls work for him from the other side. And with this unnatural power, Jim knew he could escape his family's cage and one day achieve greatness. He caught George and Melinda in the act. Cherries half popped. He pulled out the dainty 22. Jim had the drop on them. When he emerged from the dunes, they saw the gun and pissed themselves in fear. Jim held them at gunpoint and warned them to shut the fuck up. He instructed them to get on their feet, go sit on the driftwood a few steps to their right. He then clumsily tied them up with rope. It was Jim's first time, just like it would have been theirs. And because he was nervous, he got sloppy. George and Melinda slipped their bonds, ran for it. Jim saw his dreams slipping away with every footfall. Shit. He planted his father's old wingwalker boots in the sand. There were ten and a half, a little tight on Jim's size 11 feet, 
but they anchored them to the ground like they were supposed to. Just like the elegant pistol, the boots did what the stolen rope didn't. Got the job done. Pop, 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 went the bullets. Down went George and Melinda. If these kids were Viet Cong, Dad would be proud, Jim thought. But no ritual bloodletting? He couldn't let the kills be for nothing. He took a beat, collected himself. There was no time to wallow in the mire. Jim dragged George and Melinda into a rotting beach shack on the other side of the nearest dune. Inside, their young love would become a funeral pyre. Jim had to stake a claim to this flame, fire magic, transfer the energy of the recently departed to him, their killer. He took the jackknife, the last of his stolen tools, and carved a spell of his own into the soft wood. He took the M and the R from his last name, Morrison, and brought them to the front to spell Mr. He took the M and the J from his first name, Jim, and added the two O's from Morrison to spell Mojo. Finally, he took the remaining letters, R, I, S, I, and N, and bunched them together to spell Ryzen. And there you had it, plain as the red on the devil's dick, Mr. Mojo Ryzen. Okay, listen, if you're one of the few people out there who's new to podcasts, new to Disgraceland, new to true crime, if you have not already listened to the wildly popular and hysterically funny and informative podcast, My Favorite Murder, hosted by my friends Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark on the Exactly Right Network, then what are you waiting for? You got to check out My Favorite Murder in each episode. They're going to tell you stories about infamous serial killers, cold cases, incredible survivor stories. And listen, these guys are wildly popular for a reason. They have an incredible chemistry. They're hysterical. They're smart as all get up. And you're instantly going to feel like they're long lost friends. They've got great new episodes on the subjects I've already mentioned, but they've got this whole treasure trove of back episodes, including well-known stories from true crime and music history, like the deaths of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen, the murder of pop singer Selena, and now the infamous story of the cocaine bear. I've known Karen and Georgia since the beginning of my sort of foray into podcasting. They've been heroes of mine. I was on their podcast in March of 2022 to share my hometown story about a prison break party that I attended in high school. Uh, and they told me it was one of their most popular episodes. So you can check that out as well. Listen to My Favorite Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Brand new episodes drop every Thursday. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But 
maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. In the summer of 66, Jim hid in his bedroom again. But this bedroom was different from his old digs back at the rear admiral's house. He was living in a Venice Beach studio apartment. He blocked out the windows, listened to the blues, and did so much LSD it could reasonably qualify as a main source of his bodily fluids. While there, he poured psychedelic truth into a small notebook, feverishly drafting poem after poem for what he didn't know, but it kept his mind off of killing. After the night he disappeared from the family house to make his first kill, he returned home. Miraculously, the rear admiral gave in and allowed Jim to transfer into UCLA as a film student. He made exactly one film while at school, but he did graduate. After graduation, his brain scrambled by too much acid and too much Aleister Crowley, still a slave to the dark arts, looking to make his way in the world and to establish his own identity. While now on his own, he quietly disowned his family and fully embraced the bohemian lifestyle. He ran into a college buddy on the beach, a keyboard player named Ray Manzarek. He shared his poems with him, and Ray recognized them as nothing short of magical. Soon, Jim found himself in Ray's little rock and roll combo, alongside two other inspired musicians, Robbie Krieger on guitar and John Densmore on drums. They called themselves The Doors. Ray had met Robbie and John at a meditation retreat, which Jim thought was lame. Jim wasn't into the self-care bullshit. He wanted sensory overload at all times. We want the world and we want it now. Jim took to the mic and imagined what Howling Wolf would sound like reciting the evil musings of Aleister Crowley. What came out was dark, mystical, poetic, and powerful. Jim's musical inexperience was no obstacle. In no time, the Doors became the house band at the Whiskey A Go-Go nightclub on LA's Sunset Strip, opening for every headliner between May 23rd and August 21st. They released their first single in November, Break On Through. Jim had broken through years earlier, and he'd tried to hide, but that was impossible now that he had a stage. The Doors' notoriety spread, and their popularity exploded. Still, Jim found it impossible to get from music what he got from murder. That feeling from killing Bob and Linda, he, he couldn't shake it. It was stronger than the feeling he felt on stage or in the studio. He loved playing music, but the payoff was different. Maybe because he wasn't as confident a performer as one would think. If he had more faith in himself as a musician, lives might have been saved, but the rear admiral's words rang out in his drug-addled head constantly. You don't have the talent, son. It fucked with Jim. Even though he was making a name for himself, but for how long? Jim's goal was in making do on Aleister Crowley's promise. Eternal life, not pop stardom. Real greatness transcendence. The music just wasn't enough. So just weeks before the Doors' first single release, Jim felt the need to kill again. He drove to Riverside, an L.A. suburb. His victim would be Marianne Cates, another poster child for American beauty, a 20th century fox. She caught his eye at the whiskey one night, and ever since, 
In his then still anonymous downtime, he followed her, learned her routines. She was up late at her college library, and Jim Morrison was waiting. Ray's keys played in Jim's mind like the organ at a pagan church. A demonic voice spoke out in Latin and whispered into his ear. Amen. James, do you renounce the Lord of Christendom, God of colonial pigs, imperialist dogs, and capitalist pomp? I do, Jim whispered back. Do you believe this God must be overthrown? I do, Jim said as he removed the distributor cap from Marianne's car, ensuring that her car wouldn't start. He crouched down out of sight and waited. Somewhere nearby, a baby cried from an open window. Marianne exited the library, and Mr. Mojo Risen hid quietly behind her car, coiled in attack mode. Marianne stepped into her driver's seat. Her car wouldn't start. She realized something was wrong and stepped out. Jim sprang from behind, tackled her, beat her perfect body bloody. To Jim and his manic fury, his memory wires had crossed. This murder brought on the total recall of the Lompoc kill from three years before. His brain synapses firing off like the familiar sound of those 22 shots from years earlier, replaced by the sound of his fist pounding Marianne's flesh. All he heard were gunshots. Gunshots and the voice of the devil whispering in his ear. James Douglas Morrison. Do you renounce Jesus? And Sherry Jo screamed, but nobody came. And in the chaos, his fists on her flesh sounded like a flurry of gunshots. I do renounce him. And all his works? His knuckles to her ribs made a loud crack. I do renounce them. And all his promises? I do renounce them. More punches, more cracks, and she still hadn't gone limp. James Douglas? Will you pledge your soul to Satan? I will. Et nomine diabli, et fili, et spiritus Satan. James Douglas, go in evil, and may Lucifer be with you. Hail Satan. With those words whispered, Hail Satan, Jim's transformation was complete. His soul had been sold. For what, it wasn't entirely clear. Fame? Transcendence beyond the bourgeois status quo, eternal life, any combination of those things Jim didn't know. But he was certain of one thing. The power that raged through him at the moment was like an electric coil pulled tight from the tips of his toes to the crown of his skull. It surged and provided a powerful, manic, high-voltage confidence. It made him feel as though he could do anything. Jim thought to himself that that was it. This was what all the poets raved about, that feeling. The one that the scientists and astrologists could never figure out, but that the wordsmiths had on lock. That thing that inspired countless artists, painters, songwriters, and directors to keep going back to the well for, to try and to capture, to express that feeling. This was it. Love. Jim dropped Marianne to the asphalt and slid himself down the side of the car to take a seat on the ground next to his kill. He was exhausted. He rifled through Marianne's purse for her smokes, found one, lit it with her lighter, took a deep cleansing drag, tilted his head back against the car and exhaled. He then pulled the small notepad and pencil he carried with him everywhere and began writing. And that was it. There were no stars. And they were empty, hollow, like him. But unlike his words, the stars were small. Words were bigger. They could be anything which is what the scientists and the astrologists never understood about love. With words, the possibilities for love were limitless. 
Science was fixed, limiting. Compared to poetry, science was bullshit. Poetry gave wings to our desires. Astrology, the zodiac signs of compatibility, was all bunk made up to sell newspapers to bored suburban housewives like his mom. Could the zodiac signs have predicted how Jim now felt about Marianne? What she meant to him now? Now that she'd become his kill? Was the goddamn Sunday morning horoscope going to read, Aries is a fellow fire sign for you, Jim Morris and the Sagittarius. You'll find a worthy partner mentally and physically. The chemistry between you is awesome. And when you pierce her skull with the sharp end of your knife, you'll know you've found your soulmate. Jim had no idea when Marianne was born, but he knew it didn't matter for shit. He knew that she was for him, his girl. And he knew that their chemistry was quote-unquote awesome. He pulled her dead body over closer to him and placed her bloody skull on his lap. He felt for her. He really did. Something deep. A connection. It was different than the feeling he had for George and Melinda. That was more bloodlust. Craven. Clumsy. Like it is when you lose your virginity. With Marianne, it was different. The kill had a rhythm to it. Like great sex with an experienced partner. Was it because they'd hooked up after Jim had formally sealed the deal in his mind with the devil? Before he'd gotten high on Satan, stoned immaculate into a deeper understanding of the cosmos and the power of his poetry? Before he fully understood the futility of God, science, and the stars? And what did the astrologists know that the poets didn't? Nothing. Jim was in love and Satan had his back. Fuck what the horoscope said. Marianne was his first love, and no disrespect to George and Melinda. Under the empty stars that night, Marianne was Jim Morrison's first Zodiac kill. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Like the Mr. Mojo rising carving he'd made after the George and Melinda murders in Lompoc, Marianne's death wasn't tied to the killer who would become known as the Zodiac for years. When George and Melinda's bodies were eventually discovered, the Mr. Mojo rising carving went unnoticed because it had no significance, because at the time, the doors weren't yet a band. The song wasn't yet a hit. It was just a line in Jim Morrison's head that he would later write into the lyrics for the song L.A. Woman. So at the time, it just looked like some teenage graffiti, and so the clue was missed. Until now. And for Jim Morrison, a young man who craved recognition, whose goal it was, was to be infamous, whose prime motivation for killing in the first place was to build an army of souls to fight for him in perpetuity, to achieve his twisted notion of greatness. The fact that authorities were too stupid to connect him to those first few kills, it really pissed him off. It wasn't until 1970 that authorities even began to piece together the murders. San Francisco police believed the killer racked up five confirmed kills between December 1968 and October 1969. A couple on Lake Herman Road in Benicia, one in Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, one more in Napa County, and a cabbie in the Presidio Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. And they didn't even know about George and Melinda and Marianne. This infuriated Jim. He wanted the credit for all those kills and then some. He later claimed to the public that he was responsible for a total of 37 murders. Jim couldn't deal with the slowness of the San Francisco detectives, so he did what he did best. Turned to words. Poetry. A twisted poetry, but poetry nonetheless. He started to write letters to the press to claim responsibility for the murders, so the poetry needed to be twisted to conceal his identity. Jim Morrison, the fame whore, couldn't resist the rush of notoriety. 
These claims came in letters called cryptograms, sent to the San Francisco Chronicle and other newspapers. Word games like Mr. Mojo Ryzen, albeit a hell of a lot more complex. Basic cryptograms are substitution codes. Each letter replaces another. A's become B's, B's become C's, and so on. Jim digging on the Marianne kill, the ironic astrological poetry he penned while she lay dead on his lap, her soul lovingly transferred to his for eternity, as an homage signed his letter with a Z for Zodiac, and he peppered his cryptograms with pages full of Zodiac occult symbols as a subversive fuck you to the astrologist from Jim the Poet. Jim hinted at his cryptogram fascination in the Doors tune Soul Kitchen. His psychotic PR made the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as other local papers, taunting the nation into an obsession with a maniac. He sent the first cryptogram in three pieces to three separate California papers, demanding they be published or he would drive around the state committing random drive-by shootings. And it worked, like gangbusters. All three papers printed the cipher. When finally cracked, it read, I like killing people. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. The best part is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and all that I have killed will become my slaves. When he went out as the Zodiac, Jim would alter his appearance as best he could. Witness descriptions vary in hair color and length, maybe because he had his famous locks tied back or under a net or a wig. Zodiac sketches include eyeglasses, but this was to help preserve his anonymity as his fame rose. More tellingly, testimony puts the Zodiac's height at around 5'10", and Jim was 5'11". Weight estimates for the Zodiac range from 180 pounds to 200 pounds. Jim was 180, and more when he was drinking heavily, which was more often than not. But the clue that always tied Jim and the Zodiac together, the one we can now fully appreciate, was his dad, the rear admiral in his wingwalker boots. The big ten and a halfs. The ones that left the boot prints that were found at several of the murder scenes and that led investigators to suspect that the Zodiac had a military background. The Zodiac didn't, but his dad did. And the boots were the last thing connecting James Morrison, a.k.a. Jim Morrison, a.k.a. the Zodiac killer, from his old life to his new one. He was a killer just like dear old dad. Jim Morrison's father, George, had been the military commander at the Gulf of Tonkin, the shady 1964 false flag operation by the U.S. government to justify escalating the Vietnam War. Yes, Jim Morrison's dad basically started the Vietnam War. This is a fact. Look it up. And it was a fact that drove Jim crazy. He literally sold his soul for his art, but even when it came to spilling blood, he was stuck in his father's shadow. His new Zodiac persona could never approach that body count, but he could try. How did he manage this double life? It was easier than you'd think. When you're a notoriously unreliable rock star, nobody questions it when you disappear for a couple days between gigs. One hand washes the other. Let's lay out the timeline. In December, 68, the Doors played a local show at the Forum in Inglewood. Afterward, Jim was on his own with no gigs for two weeks. That's opportunity. The band had started recording their next album, Soft Parade, and the sessions were not going well. Jim needed a fix. That's motive. One week later, the Lake Herman Road murders happened with the killing of Annie Mae Jackson and William Holiday. Then, on July 1st, 1969, the Doors returned to California from a stint in Mexico City for two much-needed days off. 
the excruciating half-million-dollar, eight-month production of Soft Parade was finally wrapped, and Jim had a break, and he needed it, because he was an insecure wreck. He had no idea if the album was good or not, and feared, like most sensitive artists, that the critics would tear him apart. So Jim needed something soothing again before the upcoming release, and nothing soothed him more or gave him more satisfaction or sense of purpose than killing, than adding to his soul bank. So after the recording of Soft Parade, he was motivated to kill, and with time off, he had the opportunity to go out and quench his bloodthirst, which led to the murder of Diane Marin on July 4th, 1969 in Blue Rock Springs. After this, the Zodiac placed a phone call to the cops, another classic element of the serial killer profile, a desire to get caught. In that recording, when played now, the cadence of the voice, the thinly veiled hidden speech pattern, sounds a lot like the spoken word poetry of one Jim Morrison on his album of poems, An American Prayer. And with that phone call, a line was crossed. The Zodiac, the serial killer inside Jim, was done watching Jim Morrison, the rock star inside Jim, get the credit. The Zodiac was more than that. A poet, a soul shepherd, a killer's killer, and as far as he was concerned, Jim Morrison, the rock star, was a phony, a charlatan. Whatever he was, Jim was lost in a never-ending identity crisis. And it was coming to a boiling point, and this body wasn't big enough for the both of them. At a show in Boston, Jimbo waxed poetic with the crowd. Hey, listen, listen, listen. Listen, man, listen, man. I don't know how many of you people believe in astrology. Yeah, that's right. That's right, baby. I'm a Sagittarius. The most philosophical of all the signs. But anyway, I don't believe in it. I think it's a bunch of bullshit myself. But I'll tell you this, man. I'll tell you this. I don't know what's gonna happen, man. But I wanna have my kicks before the whole shithouse goes up in flames. All right. All right. In the fall of 1969, the Doors were deciding that a hiatus was needed, ironically for the sake of Jim's health. During that hiatus, the Zodiac notched two more attacks in under a month, by far his flashiest tour. For the first, he dressed in a hood with a Zodiac symbol on it, then hogtied and stabbed a couple on a picnic, nostalgia perhaps for his first time with George and Melinda. And the hood was needed now because Jim's face was just too damn famous. And for the second attack, he blew the brains out of a cabbie in Presidio Heights, tore off the dead man's shirt tails and nailed them to the Chronicle as a sick souvenir, fame whore that he was. Both murders preceded the recording of the Doors out in Morrison Hotel by just a few weeks. Jim knew he needed to fill the soul bank, his soul kitchen, before the grueling studio sessions were to start and inevitably end with Jim once again landing face down in the critics' den of soul-crushing jackals. Ever since Morrison Hotel came out, however, it was the Zodiac and not Jim who became all talk and no action. 
Sure, he'd tease the squares through the cryptograms he'd lay out on the newspapers with threats of blowing up buses and attacking children, but he never did. Jim even leaked a little more Zodiac into his lyrics. Blood stains the roof in the palm trees of Venice, blood and my love in the terrible summer. But it was clear the magic was fading and the art was winning. Now was Jim's chance to free himself of this demon, the Zodiac, once and for all. Of Jim's many friends and lovers, the only one he trusted was Pamela Corson. She had been the first to suggest he should quit the doors, get away, focus on his poetry. In other words, get into something real, some semblance of a real life beyond the madness of being a rock star and a serial killer. Jim didn't tell Pam he was the Zodiac, of course. He didn't have to. Even without knowing the truth, it was obvious to Pam as it was to everyone else that Jim needed help. The two made plans to lament in France. And it was the escape from the madness of rock and roll. And it was the escape from the madness of murder. But before splitting, Jim reunited with Ray, Robbie, and John to record the album L.A. Woman. They must have known this was the band's last hurrah, even if they didn't say it. But when the album was done, Jim flew to Paris. He'd had it with the stress of it all. His crisis of identity. Was he a killer or a poet? The music, the murders, it was all too much. No more souls to claim. He'd claimed enough. The only soul left up for grabs? His own. The official take is that Jim Morrison died in a Paris bathtub on July 3rd, 1971. But there's a lot that officials and the public never knew. In fact, what Jim was really doing in that bath was an exorcism. Paris was a last-ditch attempt to save him from his demons. Literally. Cafes, accordions, all the cliches. Since Pam couldn't know the extent of his depravity, even in Paris he had to play it cool and wait. He drank less, wrote more poems, chilled. But all the while, the Zodiac was screaming out from inside, threatening to burst through Jim and grab the world by its shoulders and violently shake it into an early grave. It's no coincidence that the final Zodiac letter received during the killer's active period reached the Chronicle mailroom around the same time Jim Morrison fled the United States. It was the Zodiac's last gasp. After months, the night finally came. Jim saw his chance to exercise his demons and to escape the madness of living as a serial killer to get himself, whatever that was, James, he assumed, back. Pam would be out with friends. Jim could do one last occult ritual undisturbed. He would submerge himself in the clawfoot bathtub like a sensory deprivation tank, get fully under the surface, chant an entire original Jim Morrison spell without drowning while he did it. It was dangerous stuff, performing an exorcism on yourself. But Jim didn't see it that way. He didn't want to be the Zodiac, so he decided he wasn't. He had made a deal with the devil long ago for his fame, but he had always felt like a fraud because of it. He wasn't a rock star. He was a poet. All those crimes, and that was someone else entirely, a split personality. So he wasn't exercising himself, he was casting out it, that thing, the monster. Jim closed his eyes and slipped underwater. He sang forcefully. Enough that the water didn't flood his face, and softly enough that he'd have breath for all the lyrics. He wished Pam was there with him now, but he hadn't shared this with her. It would have been too cruel, and it was too late. An actor, out on loan, and the loan came due. No more performance, just a final judgment, wake-up time. Who the fuck are you, Jim Morrison? 
That was for him to know and for the rest of us to just find out now. In Paris, he broke on through to the other side one last time. In a trance, passed out, submerged, Mr. Mojo Risen went under. The Lizard King shed his skin. The bathwater slipstreamed into his nostrils, then his lungs, and just like that, he was gone. Within hours, Pam found the body. No autopsy was ever performed. Some old-timers like to think he faked it, that he slipped the bonds of fame and wandered the earth like Cain. But someone died in that tub. The question is, who? Was it Jim Morrison? Or was it the Zodiac, freeing the real man and leaving the real Jim Morrison to wander on? After the mysterious events of his death or perhaps his rebirth, Jim Morrison would have been surprised to learn at how popular his music and words would remain throughout the years. And he'd likely also be fascinated that some crazy bullshitter with a podcast would someday accuse him of being the fucking Zodiac killer as an April Fool's joke, which of course is what yours truly just did. So pour one out for the real Jim Morrison and happy April Fool's Day. I'm Jake Brennan and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roll. He's a bad, bad man.